This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, October 7th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. I'll be reading from First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. God. Thank you. I'm going to pray this morning and we will get right to work. So if you bow with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are worthy above all to be praised. We gather here this morning in your presence, not to be entertained, not to be educated, rather to give you praise, to worship you, to remember and to proclaim and to stand in what you have done through your Son, Jesus, for us. Lord, we have received everything. It is you who has chosen. It is you who has redeemed. It is you who have forgiven. It is you who has blessed It is You who has adopted. It is You who have done everything to make us alive. And so we praise You and we confess, Lord, that we don't always live as if that is true. We confess, Lord, that we live as if we are stronger than we actually are. Wiser than we actually are. We live, Father, rejoicing in our own salvation and failing to share the news of that salvation with those who need saving. So forgive us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Thank You for saving us. Thank You for bringing us together as a people, a very different people, a people with different preferences and different passions and different stories, but a people who are shared in their identity in Christ. The people who have all been saved from the darkness of sin and the people who have been brought together to be a family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank You for all that You have done for us, Lord. And help us. Help us to not just be a family. Yes, help us to love one another, but Father, inspire in us the same kind of love that You have for the world. Help us to see the world as You see it. And give us the energy and the courage to step into it and share your love. Move me out of the way this morning, Holy Spirit, and do the work that only you can do. Heart work. The work of conviction, the work of comfort, of encouragement, of instruction. Drill deeply your words into our heart that we might live according to your ways. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. So just to begin, a real little caveat that came from uh, or inspired by the men's retreat that we had this past weekend, our speaker uh, referenced something uh, that really struck a chord with me, so I thought we would do it. So the only scripture that will be on the screen this morning is what you've already seen, which is our call to worship and the main text. And there's lots of reasons for that, but none less than my hope is that you will start opening your Bibles. There's Bibles in front of you if you don't have one. There's Bibles on the outside. As you came in, you can grab one. But let's be honest, most of our life, for most of us, takes place on this little thing, or a lot of life. And many of us have our Bibles on this little thing, and that's not evil, it's very convenient. But in truth, as we are looking at our phones most of the times in our lives, we are not looking for Scripture. And I don't for a second mean we're looking at the worst things. I'm just saying we're looking at life things. Things that email, text, news, whatever, but usually not Bible. 
And I'm thinking about those eyes that are watching us. And the power that it is for us to open up a good old-fashioned Bible and actually look at it and have others see us look at it. Because guess what? When you're looking at the Bible, you actually can't mistakenly be looking at anything else. I remember my father, though I don't know what he was reading, reading his Bible at the table every morning. And if nothing else, that communicated to me that the Bible was important to my dad. Let us be a church that does that, right? And it's got to start here, when we actually open our Bibles and learn where stuff is in that Bible so that we can share God's Word with others, even if just passively by example. So, we'll see how this goes. We're going to be in two places, 1 John and John 17. So as I'm talking, you can spend time looking for both of those books. If you start in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will get to John and look at John 17, keep your finger there. If you start in the very back of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation, that's also written by John, and start moving to the left, you will get to 1 John. Our main text is in 1 John chapter 2. We've been spending the last four weeks in a series titled, Am I Saved? And this series uh, found its inspiration, the words of Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13. And in chapter 13, verse 5, he actually, in defense of his own ministry, challenges the Corinthian church to test themselves. To test themselves to see whether they are in the faith, whether they're genuine believers or not. It's a good test. And the purpose of this test is not to generate anxiety, but instead it's to bring assurance. I think it's important. It is life-giving. It's comforting. It's inspiring to have assurance of our salvation. And the focus of the test is ourselves. The test is not focused on our friends. It's not focused on our spouses. It's not even primarily focused on our kids. It's for ourselves. To test ourselves. And the material for the test, what's being tested, is not our knowledge primarily. And it's not even our behavior, primarily. It is, in fact, our deep belief. The convictions and the true desires of our heart that only you and God know. That's what's being tested. Now, the word salvation, it's a big word, frequently used in Christian world, it can feel very impersonal, it can feel very cold, it can feel, I think, somewhat transactional. And admittedly, even the question, am I saved, sounds kind of mechanical, kind of clinical. But I would propose that there is actually nothing more personal, more intimate than salvation. Because it comes about through a man who is God laying down his life willingly for his friends. That is love. Salvation is the supreme act of love. The supreme act of love by the God who is love to change what and who and how we love. I would argue that's perhaps a better definition of salvation. It's about changing what we love. Changing who we love and how we love. There's a great book. I've not fully read it, but I've 
been familiar with it in different ways at different times. It's called You Are What You Love. And the author in it writes this, that Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into our minds. He is after nothing less than your wants and your loves and your longings. That is what I mean when we speak of salvation. Love. And the change that happens. So our journey that will end with this sermon this morning, our journey through the epistle of John has revealed that salvation God's salvation changes our love for Jesus. And it changes our love for our sin. doesn't mean that we never sin. It's that we have new desires that compel us not to sin. I don't want to sin. I don't love sin anymore. That salvation changes our love for the Scriptures, for the Bible. That salvation changes our love for God's people. And so in this last week in our series, we're going to consider how salvation changes our love for the world. Now in our main text this morning, out of 1 John chapter 2, John is very, once again, plain, direct, and clear. He says in 1 John chapter 2, Beginning in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions, it's not from God. The world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John plainly says, right, anyone who loves the world does not have the love of the Father in him. That's shorthand for saying that they're not saved. There's our test. What is my disposition towards the world? According to John, the love of the world, whatever love he is talking about, whatever world he is talking about, the love of the world can't coexist with the love of the Father in one person. Now, seeing as we all live in the world, I assume... We live among the world. We live around the world. It's all over. Like We need to understand what it means to not love the world. That seems important. And different people have offered different explanations. Does that mean I'm supposed to hate the world? Because John's used a lot of love-hate contrast throughout this book. Am I supposed to hate the world? Am I supposed to fight the world? Am I supposed to attack the world? Is the world an enemy to be destroyed? Am I supposed to hide from the world and stay away from the world and separate myself from the world? Can we like the world and not love the world? Or is that considered worldly? Well, what is the world exactly? It might be important to know. So the word for world is used really frequently in the New Testament. It's actually used 186 times. And only nerds like myself probably know that it's used 105 times by John. Right? John really likes using this word. He uses it in his Gospel. He uses it in his epistles. He uses it in the revelation that he records from Christ. And while sometimes the world is used to describe physical creation, right? The earth. And that's what that word world can mean. More often, he is describing the fallen 
creation when he speaks of the world. When John uses the word world here, he's describing something very specific, and it's not just the earth. He is describing that human system that is hostile toward and in rebellion against God. This world he's talking about is the kingdom of darkness on earth. It is a majority people. A majority of the population that refuse to thank God or at times even acknowledge His existence. The world is, in a very, I think, simple but direct definition, those people and those organizations who do not fear God, who unapologetically pursue their own passions, who pridefully make their own plans, who foolishly dictate their own morality. This is right. This is wrong. Why? Because I think so. Who joyfully participate in, approve of, and even work to institutionalize sin. We say the world. That is what we're talking about. Now, John gives an even simpler summary of all that is in the world. Specifically, he says in that text that all that is in the world, all of sin, includes the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions. It could be said that any sin, all sin, whatever sin comes to your mind, somehow fits into one of these three descriptive categories. Now certainly there are reams and huge books and sermons written on all this stuff, but just to be more simplistic, we talk about the desires of the flesh, we talk about those things that that are physical or even emotional pleasures that make us feel in our flesh. And they range from gossip to sexuality to immorality to substance abuse that give rise to pride and to pleasure and all those things that come from the flesh. The desires of the eyes refers to sin that occurs obviously by what we see. It may not actually manifest itself in action. It's the idea of sinful coveting of another's life, of some aspect of their life. A sinful longing for what we see, but what we don't have. I have yet to have anyone sit down as a pastor, and I've had them confess many desires of the flesh, many sins that they've committed that are very tangible, and you can see I have had very few, if any, sit down and say, you know, I think I struggle with coveting. Or I think I struggle with greed. Or I want this thing that this person has. But those are the kinds of sins perhaps that plague us even more so. And then lastly, you have pride in possessions, or some translations say the pride of life. And simply, this is the self-centered pursuit of self-glory that comes from making a name for ourselves. And more than anything, I think, in our culture today, people are devoted to making a name for themselves. And they do it through some of the most horrible ways. Because one of the greatest fears we have in our culture today, I think, is the fear of being ordinary. And so in order to be extraordinary, I have to be shocking. And it's amazing the kinds of videos, the kinds of things that people have done that have actually made them into celebrities in our culture. That they're considered extraordinary because of some of the horrible things that they've done. Making a name for ourselves. Devoted to making a name. Things being about me, centered on me, devoted to me. That's what John says. This describes all the sin in the world. These three categories. 
And John says, look, do not love that world, nor those things. In fact, he goes so far to say that the love of the Father and the love of the world can't coexist. The loving salvation of God does something to us, changes us deeply, and as I said, changes what we love and who we love and even how we love. Not perfectly, but certainly new desires that go a particular direction and lead us in a particular way. Those who have the love of the Father abiding in them begin to love the things the Father loves. Those that have the love of the Father in them naturally desire, not perfectly, though we do fail. That's why it's in Scripture reminding us to set our mind on things above and not things below. Those who have the love of the Father in them desire to walk in the ways of Christ. And even if they stumble, they don't want to walk the ways of the world. Those who have the love of the Father in them proclaim and love the promises of God and they denounce and deny themselves the false promises of sin. Even if every now and then, to our shame, we believe them. But this doesn't mean that we don't enjoy some of the beautiful, glorious parts of creation. Like bacon. Right? Amen. Or amazing music, even if not made by a believer. (gasps) Listen to Tom Petty. Absolutely. Different things that are beautiful in creation, that are glorious in creation, that are there to enjoy. God the Father gave good gifts, and all good gifts are from the Father. The problem is, we are not to make those gifts into God's. And that is what we're talking about when we talk about not loving the world. In the story of the Exodus, which is the story of God redeeming His people out of slavery in Egypt, God sends this guy, 80-year-old dude, to Pharaoh named Moses. Tells them to say a few things. And this is what he says in Exodus chapter 7, verse 16. He says, You shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. Did you know that God intended to redeem his people out of slavery in Egypt to bring them out to be? worshipers. And when He brought them out, He brought them to the bottom of Mount Sinai, right? And He gave them the law. Call it the law of Moses, beginning with the Ten Commandments. And that law was in a, very much like a worship manual. This is how our relationship will go. This is the rules of the relationship that will ensure that we love each other. You do these things and I will do these things and we'll have this covenant together. But it's like a worship manual. Now when Jesus walked the earth and He was asked in an attempt to get Him to say the wrong thing or say something sinful, They said, hey, what's the most important law in the law of Moses? And Jesus responded in Matthew 22 saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what did Jesus just say there? That the whole law was about loving God first 
and loving people. And what we see, if he was bringing them out to be worshipers, and he gave them this law, and this law was to ensure their worship was pure, and he says, all the law is about loving God, then worship and love of God's people somehow go together. They're intricately connected. Perhaps it's best said this way. Godly love is worship of our Creator. And ungodly love is idolatry of His creation. It's actually worshiping a gift that He has given us. Loving a gift that He has given us more than we worship or love him. So when John warns us against loving the world, he is warning us not to worship creation, not to make it supreme in our lives. And it's interesting, this is why if you turn over to the last verse in 1 John chapter 5, which is the last chapter in his letter, what's interesting is that after a, an entire epistle about loving God's Son, Jesus, and loving God's holiness and His commands and loving His Word and loving God's people, he like throws this last little verse on the end which seems kind of out of place, but not when you understand in the context of worship and love and what God demands and wants from us most. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Love Jesus, love His Word, love His holiness, love His people. Keep yourself away from idols. Because that's what's competing for our love. Now, an idol, something, some image comes to your mind when I say idol. And it certainly should not be some carved image of an animal chiseled from stone or carved from wood, though certainly there were real tangible idols and are today that people use. But it is better understood, it's, it's, it's that part of the created world that we worship and we serve as our functional Savior. And many of these things are good. That's part of the problem. To paraphrase Tim Keller, he says that more likely our idol is not a bad thing. In fact, it's probably a good thing that we just want too badly. We can make idols out of all kinds of things. You know this. We know this. Jobs are a wonderful thing. Work was given to mankind as part of creation. And yet, Many of us have made an idol out of our vocation. Many of us have made an idol out of our families. God has given us families. Many of us have given spouses and children, and those are blessings and gifts from the Lord, but they make horrible gods. John warns us not to love the world meaning that there should be nothing and no one rivaling the supremacy of Christ in your life. There should be nothing else and no one else in this world that you look to more for your ultimate meaning, your ultimate satisfaction, your ultimate security, your ultimate hope in this life and the next. And if you do put one of God's creation in His place, when that creation is lost, which given enough time, it will be, you will find yourself without hope, without security, without meaning, without joy, because your God just died. We need something that can take us beyond loss, beyond death. This is why Jesus gives us his own warning in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. A verse that we read sometimes, we go, 
That sounds kind of disturbing, but in the context of love and worship, you understand hopefully what he is saying here. In Matthew 10, verse 37, he said, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Perhaps we should read it a little bit differently. Forgive me, Father. It's for example. I'm not writing new Scripture. Whoever worships father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever worships his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever worships his job more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever worships any relationship or any position or any sense a purpose and power and pleasure in this life more than me is not worthy of me. Our love for Jesus should not ever, ever take second chair to any other love we have. It doesn't mean those loves are bad, but when they become supreme, they are. As the people who are described as saved out of the world, right? that's what Christians are called, we continue to live within that world as a different kind of people with totally different loves. Because of Christ's love, we live with a new identity. We have a very different loyalty. We have a very different destiny. And in his Gospel, John recorded Jesus saying, if the world hates you, know that it has hated Me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, implying that you're not, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Those are strong words. Some of you may not feel hated by the world. And for some, big deal. For others, that might be concerning. But even if we are hated by the world as a Christian, even if your faith generates hate and hostility, it's tempting as you think of what the world is to go, well, you're just evil and yucky and of course you hate me. It's tempting to hate back. But the Bible says that even if the world hates us, we're not encouraged to hate. On the contrary, we are commanded to love the world. Wait, 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 wait. Didn't you just say that we're not to love the world? Yes. And now you're saying we are to love the world. Yes. See, it's, it's somewhat of a paradox but in the context of worship, you begin to understand how that is possible. We are warned not to love the world in a particular way, and we are called to love the world in a particular way. In the culturally most popular verse in the Bible, John 3.16, let us not forget that it says, for God so loved the world. Right? Well, certainly he didn't worship the world. But the next part of that phrase implies the kind of world he's, or love he's talking about, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son to die for the purpose of redemption. Without question, God didn't love the world in rebellion against Him. He didn't look down and go, this is awesome. I'm so glad that the world is so full of self-absorption and self-rule and ugliness and violence and immorality. Fantastic. No. In fact, he plainly declares in Scripture how much he hates sin. But did you know, which is not popular to say, Scripture also says that he hates sinners. I hate the prideful man. 
But the Bible also says, as you sit on that, go, what do you, what's the, love the sinner, hate the sin. The Bible says that he hates sin and he hates sinners, and the Bible says that he loves sinners. It's just paradox. Like, how can those be the same? The cross. That's how they work together. He says that he loves sinners, and that's why he sent his son, because he loves the world enough to see it changed, to see it redeemed, to see it freed from sin, to see it restored. And that is why we often talk about that we are restored in Christ to bring restoration through Christ because we are to be tools of restoration. So if you have your finger in John 17, I like to read a large section of that. John 17 is Jesus' longest recorded prayer in Scripture and it's incredibly rich. I'm going to read beginning in verse 6 and I want you to listen how many times He talks about the world. Christ was very mindful of the world and mindful of our role in it. In John 17, beginning in verse 6, Jesus says this, I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. Speaking about His disciples who are there with Him. Yours they were, and You gave them to Me, and they have kept Your word. Now they know that everything that You have given Me is from You. For I have given them the words that You gave Me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from You, and they have believed that You sent Me. And I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom You have given Me, for they are Yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Speaking of Judas. But now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. And I have given, you, given them your word, word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. So I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which would be us. He's writing a prayer about his disciples, and he's writing a prayer about future disciples. In this paradoxical way, where God says, Do not love the world, but love the world. He says, We are saved out of the world. And we are sent into the world. See, when someone is saved, and again, we're talking about what happens in the heart of someone that God has saved. When the love of Christ comes to abide in one's heart, we are no longer blind. We talked about what salvation does. It's like going from blindness to sight, from death to life. And we immediately see the world for what it is. When before we were blind, when before we were captivated by the world, when before we were tossed to and fro like children at every little wind of doctrine that came, we suddenly like, oh, I see what it is. And I see that I'm different than the world. That we are different than the world. We value different things. We desire different things. We pursue different things. 
We see without even having to try that the ways of the world lead to death and the ways of Christ we know and see lead to life. But we don't just see the world evil. We don't just see the world in rebellion. It is that. We see the world also as blind. We see the world also as lost. We see the world also in need of hope. We see the world compassionately. Of course, every non-believer, because they live in the world, can recognize that the world is broken and deficient and messed up. The problem is they will not come up with the same reasons for that nor the same solutions to that. Their solutions to overcome all the world's problem are usually different laws and different leaders and different definitions or some other different external thing. And they miss the point. And as Christians, we ought not miss the point. Everyone can go, look at the evil out there. But only those whose eyes have been opened by Christ will ever say, but what about the evil in here? Because the problem comes from within, deeply in the heart of man, of whom only God can change. John tells us very plainly how we overcome the world. How we overcome the problems in the world. And what it even means to overcome. He says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I think if we were to ask a large number of non-believers, but even perhaps those who claim to believe, if asked, what is the solution to the problems of the world? Let's make it a little more personal. What is the solution to problems in your life? More money. Different circumstances. Different spouse. Different relationship. Different job. Something different outside of myself. And we do the same with the world. How are we going to fix these problems? More money, different leaders, different relationships. When in truth, the thing that needs fixing is the heart and the thing that overcomes the problem of the world is faith in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When someone is saved, Right When someone is transformed, when their heart of stone is ripped out and God puts a heart of flesh to beat for him in their chest, the love of Christ is abiding there. And we are no longer blind. And yes, we see the world for what it is, but we also see a new responsibility to that world. That's why Jesus prays, I've sent them into the world. He didn't send us alone and He didn't send us ill-equipped. He sent us together. He sent us with His Spirit and He sent us with His Word to distinguish us and to protect us as we go into the world and make all nations into disciples. We have a God who loves to save. And we should love to see Him save. When the love of God enters our heart. You know, there's a moment, and, and we forget this, especially those who have been Christians a long time. And you're reminded when someone comes to faith, right? When you see them baptized and they're excited, and you're like, man, I remember that moment. Because when the love of Christ comes in, it's that moment where what you were is gone. And a new creation has happened. And you're so excited you want to 
tell everyone because you are like a blind man who suddenly can see. And you're like, look, you know that's orange? And they're like, yeah, it's always been orange. But you're just like on fire because you've never seen orange before. But when that love of Christ truly enters us, you know what we want? Yes, we celebrate and rejoice and we're like, man, I can see. But no, we want, look at all these other blind people. I want them to see. See, perhaps to everyone's disappointment, when Jesus saves us, He doesn't just take us home immediately. That's Jesus' fault. He prayed it right there, John 17, just so you know. I don't pray you take Him out of the world, Lord. Nope. Send Him deeper into it. And He wasn't just praying for them, He's praying for us. He says it so plainly. I don't just ask for them, but for those who will come to believe by their word. See, the call to follow Jesus is not just an invitation to label yourself Christians and hang out with other people who label themselves Christians. It's to go. Or as 1 Peter 2.9 plainly says it. And you've heard this verse before because I preached it here and it's used and commonly repeated. You are a chosen race. Yes! You are a royal priesthood. Yes! You are a holy nation. Yes! You are a people for His own possession. Yes! And you're excited. Jesus saved me. That's not the whole verse. He chose you. He made you. He redeemed you. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That is why He saved you. You have a job. And for those who know the love of Christ, understand and desire to fulfill that job. Not because you're afraid He's going to be disappointed if you don't. Because you want others to experience that same hope and that same joy that I genuinely hope that you have. So John says, don't love the world by worshiping it, but worship God by loving the world. Those who know the love of God, you possess a power to heal sickness worse than the deadliest disease imaginable. And I, and I want you to understand before I say what's next that we, we have people dying in our church. Struggling with terminal illnesses. Some we know of. Some we don't. But do you understand that disease can only kill the body? It can't touch the soul. And we have a cure for the soul. A cure that gives hope beyond death. A hope that can never be taken away no matter what happens. How does, what does this have to do with me being saved? Well, my point is simple. Your salvation was never meant to terminate on your own celebration. We should celebrate. We should rejoice at the joy of our own salvation. And then we should go that others might experience the same. It may be fair to say that your salvation was never intended only to bless you. That is why you're here and those who love God love the things God loves and loves as God does to see sinners saved out of the world that it's on its way to death. And loving the world can be hard, but guess what? You know what? Here's a little newsflash or a secret perhaps. Loving the world can actually be very easy. For example, there are people in your family, there are people in your 
friend circle. There are people in the communities you hang out with. There's people in your neighborhood that do not know Jesus. How often do you pray for them? A couple years ago, I was very convicted. Most of my family, though I was raised to love Jesus, has gone the other direction and now has nothing to do with Jesus. And I was convicted by the reality that I had not prayed for them at all. And I may be the only person to consider and think about praying for them. So every night, with my two little kids, as I pray with them before they go to bed, there's a list that we go down. That's easy. There are people in your lives, in your families right now that need to know Jesus. And maybe you won't get the opportunity to speak the truth to them, but someone can, and that may actually occur through your prayer. We have stuff like Restore Snohomish. And talking about, oh, it's hard to love the world, but sometimes it's really easy. We don't res- do Restore Snohomish and, and give opportunities to, to feed the homeless at the community kitchen or other things because we want to feel good about ourselves. What we're trying to do is create pathways for all of us to love the world. And that can be tangibly felt, and it's not a big sacrifice. If you can't sacrifice one evening, no, three hours every two months, you need to clear your schedule a little bit. It's a little full if it doesn't have any margin for something like that. Involvement in Operation Christmas Child. Pretty darn easy. And the way they have set up, man, they just pretty much do everything for you. You've got to fill a shoebox or two or three or ten. And I know we, we look at that sometimes and we go, it's just... Christmas gifts. Briefly, I was told this story. I'm not sure it's true. I think it is. I'm going to repeat it because it's a good story. But actually, the speaker at our retreat is the one I was told this story from. So he learned of a particular individual who had received a box. This is many years ago because back in the day, which just means long time ago, they used to put chocolate bars. That was part of the kind of list of things that you'd put in there. Probably started a little bit of melting issues, so they probably had to stop doing that. But this particular child received a box with a candy bar in it. Well, it happened to be that the father of this child was really sick. So they used that chocolate bar and they sold it to get money, to get medicine, so that the father would be healed. And he was And through a series of events of that organization working with them, that father became a Christian. Then that family became a Christian. And then that village became Christian. So I know many times we fill up these boxes and we're like, hey kids, this would be fun. And I want you to understand that there's a lot more going on than just some socks and stuff in a box. That's the gospel going out. And as the wealthiest nation on this earth, I think filling a shoebox or two or ten is the least that we can do to take the gospel outside of our nation. Sometimes love in the world's really hard, and sometimes it's really easy. I think of our building. It's easy to just kind of like, oh, it's just a building to have a building. It's nice to have a building as a church. It's actually a little bit of a headache to have a building as a church, honestly. But do you know why we're putting roots down in this place? It's because if we're ambassadors in this place, we want to have an embassy in this place. An embassy is designed to bless and love the city better. Our hope is to more effectively love this city. To invite the city into our home during the week and certainly on Sundays. But to love them better. To put a flag down for Jesus in this place. To say, we worship Jesus here, which means we love Jesus here, and we want you to know, like our A-board signs say, Jesus restores. You notice we don't have times on there. The name of our church is really small because the big thing we want on our sign, Jesus restores. That's why we exist. And certainly evangelism opportunities that we overlook because we are fearful of saying the wrong thing, 
forgetting that the heart is decisively in the hand of God, and if you're willing to open your mouth and actually just say the name of Jesus, to say Jesus died on the cross for our sins, Jesus rose from the dead to give us new life, Jesus did all of this because we cannot save ourselves, we are too broken, unable, weak, and He shows us grace. To say that has power to change a life. Or, as we'll see in the next couple weeks, opportunities to support those missionaries who are out there doing what we'd consider frontier work, many of whom are still dying for the faith. Sometimes it's hard, but sometimes it's really easy to love the world. But whatever we do, it should be really difficult for anybody we know. We should make it really difficult for anyone we know to go to hell. Not on my watch, right? I think of this missionary who I love. because He's got a cool name, C.T. Stud. You should read his biography if you get the opportunity, but check out what he says. Let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the field of battle. Oh man! Tim's dead! Woo! That guy was preaching all over the place. That's my hope for us. That we don't love the world, but that we love the world because of how much we love Jesus. Never forget that we are a saved people and we are a sent people. That we are new creations and we are ambassadors. We are disciples and we are evangelists. And I'll close with a passage out of Matthew chapter 9, which is a passage you may not think to read, or at least not emphasize the point I want to emphasize. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus is going about teaching. He says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And the most poignant part of that passage, you know what it is? It's that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. I think some of our willingness to proclaim the gospel is because we walk around life like this, not wanting to look at the brokenness and the lostness around us. And when Jesus saw the crowds as helpless and harassed, He had compassion. If you're only hanging out with Christians in your life, you are not close enough to see those who need the gospel. And I would argue that if you open your eyes, there's plenty of people around you whom you should and can have compassion on. Compassion enough to give them the cure. And we have to be bold enough to speak. Not just close enough to see, but bold enough to speak. If you are so focused on the fact that like, this person's not going to believe, they're going to think I'm a fool, like, you're only thinking about yourself in that moment. Set your mind on things above and trust that God can even use your broken words to change a life. And I would say we must be humble and aware enough to pray because we can't reach everybody. But there's someone who can reach someone who can reach someone. We need to have an awareness as a church of what's going on outside of this small group and even outside this city. And we need to pray. Pray that more people will be sent out and pray that those who are sent out have the boldness and the courage and the, and the protection they need
to proclaim the excellencies of him who transferred and saved them out of the kingdom of darkness and put them in the kingdom of light. Don't love the world, but love the world. Don't worship the world, but worship God by loving the world enough to tell them the truth and give them the words of life. Amen? Let's pray.